It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Boys and girls, we are back with another edition of the Ben Downish podcast brought to you by Fox News. You can check out all of our podcasts at foxnewspodcast.com. I hope that you will rate, review, and subscribe to this one and share it with your friends if you are a fan of it. Today, we have a conversation with Congressman Chip Roy of Texas. He's someone who is at the forefront of the conservative movement within the Congress. He's also someone who I have happened to know for almost two decades now uh, by dint of working for uh, then uh, Senator uh, John Cornyn from Texas, who is still there, obviously. Uh, and uh, Chip was his uh, one of his lead advisors, someone who was his uh, you know, a counsel on a number of different matters at the time. Uh, since then, he's gone through a number of different experiences, including working for Governor Rick Perry of Texas, uh, being a critical advisor for him, uh, and then deciding to run for Congress himself and becoming the leader of a populist conservatism that still values the Constitution uh, and is someone who is obviously at the center of conversations about the leadership battle that awaits Republicans when it comes to deciding who the next Speaker of the House will be. Chip Roy of Texas joining me next. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Chip Roy, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Yeah, my pleasure, my friend. So uh, before we get started, I just wanted to uh, get your own reaction to what played out in these 2022 uh, midterms, which have led to a lot of frustration from the conservatives who I talk to regularly uh, on what they feel like were some missed opportunities. What's your frame, your storyline for understanding what went on in the 2022 midterms? Well, let me start with the conclusion, right? And then I can kind of work backwards into kind of how I got there. My conclusion is, is that you, you win elections broadly by painting a bright, bold picture, uh, running on it and mobilizing people to get in behind you. I think we failed to do that. I think we failed to do that fairly obviously in the Senate where Leader McConnell literally refused to even run on an agenda and explicitly chastised Rick Scott for trying and just said, let's run against Biden. Like it was explicit. It wasn't even sort of just ignored. It was explicit in the house. Um, McCarthy, Scalise and leadership basically kind of did a half measure, right? It kind of weak commitment that was pretty vague. Didn't really do much. As my friend Ralph Norman from South Carolina said in a meeting the other day, he said, Hey, you just basically said, I'm going to build you a good house. But I'm a builder. What does that mean? Is, it, is that bricks? Has it got a metal roof? Does it have, you know, it wasn't very specific. I think that's exactly right. I think the American people were left wanting. And when you're left wanting, 
then I think you don't get them mobilized. Now, there's a lot of the all the talking heads and all the you know political consultants will say, look, guys, you guys are overstating this. It's because of redistricting. There, it was a really hard map. You know, it was going to be difficult in the Senate anyway. Um, look, there's always an element of truth to those things, right? I mean, I've had to run campaigns. There's, there's math, and you got to work this out and figure it out. But if you give in to that, then you're basically just giving in to saying, well, the map's decided it. We can't win anybody. We're just reverting to our corners. And that's not about winning minds and hearts. If Republicans don't get out of that trap, we can't lead the country forward. And we need now, I think, a 10-year cycle where we go take our country back. Two years right now in the House of Representatives stopping Biden and trying to put the brakes on and set the stage for 24. And then we need eight years of awesomeness to reverse what has been happening with this decline and in, in destroying the American culture and the values that you and I, I know represent. And I got a little far afield, but that, that's my takeaway. Eight years of awesomeness is my takeaway from, from that. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I think that one of the things that we've certainly learned is that there were a number of key districts where uh, certain voters were turned off by, you know, for lack of a better phrase, uh, the the chaotic nature of some of these outsider candidates or what was framed by the media as being kind of chaotic. Uh, basically, that in this moment when so, so many people clearly do not like the direction the country is taking, we see in every poll that they you know, have serious questions about the the Biden Democrat agenda that they didn't really have enough of a level of confidence in the Republican alternative. What can be done to basically assert to the American people that Republicans really do want to achieve dramatic and significant change in the direction of the country, but that getting there doesn't require them to necessarily go along with a candidate who they feel like would be more of a, a chaotic force in the media or something like that, as opposed to offering them a sense of stability and kind of normalcy? You know, that's a really important question, the sort of $64,000 question, if I'm going to date my old self. Um, look, I think, not to repeat the first part, but it matters. Leadership matters. Mm-hmm. Um, setting the tone matters from the top. And and what you get out of Washington and the political class is, oh, don't worry, we'll go pick the candidates better. We'll pick candidates who can win. The last thing I want to hear are Washington talking heads or the political class telling me they're going to pick the candidates who can win. I can promise you I wouldn't have been on their short list. Mm-hmm. The, the fact is we need to have the leadership in setting a direction for the country that then people can get in behind and then message behind and do so proudly. And that's missing. And that's what I meant before when I was talking about the 10 years and then, you know, the eight years of awesomeness. We need the two years right now in the House as a firewall for, for freedom and to preserve and protect this, what, what we've got left. And then we need someone to be carry the banner in 24 that we can all get in and rally behind and build that message out. Because I promise you right now, it's not coming from the, the swamp leadership. It's not coming from the status quo. It's not coming from a Senate that just put in place the same friggin' leadership that's been giving you the same broken Senate that just gave you 12 Republicans who voted to crap all over marriage and to, you know, not fight for religious liberty. It's mm-hmm. not going to come from a house that just reanointed the same leadership. It's not going to cut, you know, so we, we're going to need to get in behind um, someone who will do that. But more importantly, for the kind of hope of not just waiting for some hope of one individual, we need to, as conservatives and a conservative movement, re-engage and put forward those 
ideas and the visions and the principles we want to get behind. And we need to re-engage. Like I'm telling you, it was pretty quiet last week in this town from the outside and from people getting in and saying, hey, why won't you senators protect marriage and stand up in defense of religious liberty? So all of us have got to get in and, and do our part. So I want to ask you about that vote just because you brought it up. I realize it's a Senate side you know, issue or yeah. at least you know, it's been kicked over there. You know, obviously, this was something where Democrats were trying to weaponize, uh, you know, a couple of lines from Clarence Thomas, in his opinion, uh, which uh, on on the Dobbs case, which was clearly, from my perspective, just stating that Clarence Thomas still thinks the same things that he did before. Yeah. <laughs> it was not exactly news that that no. Clarence Thomas thinks these things. You know, he obviously, you know, uh, had his own dissents within Obergefell and elsewhere. <laughs> but, you know, from my perspective, I look at something like what they were doing in the Senate as being deeply irresponsible because what you're effectively doing from my perspective is weaponizing the bureaucracy to be deployed against every kind of Christian nonprofit school, et cetera, that, uh, that they want to go after and, and allowing them to do that seems to me to be, you know, not just, you know, unconservative, but anti-federalist in certain ways and certainly something that should be more of a concern but the social conservative movement seems to have been so hollowed out over the past several years that yep. they just don't cause the kind of of consternation or any kind of fear from Republicans in the Senate. You know, what was your take on on why that played out or why that's played out the way it is? Because, you know, if anything, in the last several years, it seemed to me that religious liberty was becoming a higher priority for Republicans in a beneficial way of them being aware of how much it was at risk. Again, cutting to the chase, um, some senators uh, aren't inclined to stand on principle unless they're forced to. And as you said, uh, we didn't really have the the uh, troops come in and, and fight and push them to get there. I mean, there was word on the street that there were a few of those 12 that were standing up in the Republican conference and who were saying things like, oh, I mean, we have to vote for this. We're not going to be able to move forward. They just people won't support Republicans if we don't stand up and move forward on this you know new concept of marriage. And so put aside the fact that you're voting to embrace a definition of marriage, which I don't believe can be embraced, you're literally standing up and saying, I want to allow for a private right of action to go after individuals for their closely held religious belief. And I'm going to allow the Senate uh, folks to say, hey, I've got language in here that protects you. Don't worry. And you've got guys like Mike Lee and Ted Cruz and a bunch of others. You're pretty smart lawyers and a bunch of outside lawyers looking at this going, uh, no, you're setting this up as a direct weaponization against people who believe what they believe. Uh, and you should do something about it. And they go, no, that'll never happen in America. Meanwhile, <laughs> we just saw this summer in Finland, a mm-hmm. member of parliament was actually being prosecuted for this very thing, mm-hmm. daring to stand up and say, oh, wait a minute, maybe a boy shouldn't race against a girl in a swim meet. And uh, suddenly, uh, you know, that member of parliament is being you know, chastised. It's just, this is the blindness that you get by political leaders who tuck tail and run. And let's mind you, Cynthia Lummis is from a 70% Republican state in Wyoming, right? Joni Ernst, Todd Young in Indiana, Dan Sullivan, Alicia Murkowski in Alaska. Go down the list of people, Mitt Romney in Utah. Don't don't get me started on that guy. But that's (laughs) that's what we're dealing with here. Bright red states, and they they just left us uh, hanging. So uh, I want to ask you about the the leadership fight uh, that is currently happening on the House side. I I, I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's news to you. Um, Look, 
my own perspective on this is is obviously informed by my experience on Capitol Hill working with you and, and so many other smart people who know how the system works and and having the the expectations involved of of trying to work from a realistic perspective, not having kind of a fanciful perspective on what we'd like to get out of leadership. What is your what is Chip Roy's list of demands from House leadership that would make you happy? What do you feel like you're going to get and what do you feel like you're not getting that you think is really important? Well, first of all, let's just talk about how this town works and you know it, right? Um, You don't really have a check against the establishment in this town. It's just the bottom line, right? They roll over you. You have to find every opportunity you can to try to extract and create transformational change. Otherwise, a massive spending bill, all with everybody and all the forces of the defense industrial complex comes in right behind it. Mm-hmm. And everything and everything under the sun, whether it's, you know, abortion funding for travel, whether it's, you know, we're talking about vaccine mandates, whatever, they all get piled in behind it. And everybody says, oh, Chip, sorry, we got to do the pay raise for the troops. You've got to eat this bill or you're going to leave our troops hanging. And then suddenly you end up with $32 trillion of debt and you end up with a massive government. Like, that's how this place actually works. You know it, I know it, and anybody who follows D.C. knows it. So what am I looking for? I'm looking for a conservative check on the establishment. I want to maintain my ability to be able to at least have my voice and to defend the right to protect my constituents with my election certificate. The problem is in the House, we're a majoritarian body. I accept that. But... I have a right to use my election certificate. I have a right to use my voice. And what I mean by that is right now, I don't, right? Mm -hmm. I haven't been able to offer an amendment on the floor of the House in open debate since May of 2016. I don't get a say. And suddenly you got these leadership folks who are chosen by the same K Street and establishment crowd who drive everything around this town. They're the ones that get to decide what my constituents get done? No. So you're asking me what I want to see. And by the way, my position has been the same since Election Day. No one has 218 votes, and I want to change the status quo, and I'm going to work to do so. Mm -hmm. That means I'm still working to figure that out. But I'm telling you today, no one has 218 votes, and we're not changing the status quo yet. So what do I want to see? I want to see changes to the Rules Committee and how bills get to the floor. I want to see commitments that will have full absolute, sacrosanct, 72 hours or longer to read the actual bills, single subject bills. That means that they don't get off at far afield, germane amendments so that you don't get things where you're getting stuff added to it in 2000 page bills. And I want to be able to go through the regular order and the regular process and democratize my ability to offer amendments and rules committee and be able to get to the floor and offer amendments where appropriate. Those are process things the American people don't really care about, but smart ones do. They get it. They want Congress to work. But I also, at the end of the day, I want to make sure that we have the power to check the Speaker. The Speaker of the House should should absolutely embrace, not shun, not fear, embrace what's called vacate the chair. It was in Jefferson's manual since the beginning. Thomas Jefferson. It's good enough for Thomas Jefferson. It's good enough for me. And what it does is it allows any member of the body to go down and file a motion to vacate the chair if they think their rights aren't being protected. And then the body has to vote as whether they're going to keep the chair. And what I would say if I was running for speaker, I'm not, but if I were running for speaker, I would say I absolutely want vacate the chair. Mm -hmm. 
because all 222 Republicans are going to have an access to my office, an open door. We're going to sit down as a family and we're going to go fight for the American people and deliver on the promises we made. And you know what? We're not going to fund the stuff we campaigned against. And we're not going to keep vaccine mandates going. And we're going to stand up and secure the border. We're going to use the power of the purse. We're going to actually do what we said we were going to do and secure the border using the power of the purse. So those are policy things tied to actual action. But you got to have the ability for members like me to go exercise my voice with vacate the chair. And I don't understand why certain guys are afraid of that. And that's one thing. Another bad sign was standing aside and just letting the earmark fiasco get embraced again just the other day, two days ago. Mm -hmm. House Republicans just voted 52 to 158 to re-embrace earmarks, the currency of corruption, the gateway drug to spending our old friend Dr. Coburn used to talk about. God rest his soul. And, you know, uh, that's not the right direction. You're jumping feet first back into the very swamp you said you want to drain. Mm-hmm. Let's do things differently. Let's stop the status quo. I'm not asking for the moon. I'm not trying to take anybody's head. I want to change this place. I'm sick of it. And if anybody comes to this town and says we're doing it the right way, they're insane. $32 trillion of debt, wide open borders. Uh, you know, the situation with just blank checks to Ukraine, even if you think we ought to be supporting Ukraine, if we ought to be doing it the right way, all of those things, we're doing it all the wrong way. So uh, first off, just from a strategic perspective, how do you have vacate, a cha- vacate the chair be an active approach in a majority that's so slim that you could have the potential of a lot of new members, you know, uh, es- essentially a lot of the moderate members who got elected in this last cycle to potentially become a real thorn in the side and, you know, perhaps unite with Democrats in order to, uh, you know, broker some kind of deal? How does it not result in chaos? The same way right now. I mean, the same way we're trying to fix it and, and, and determine the speaker right now. People are saying, well, Chip, you guys are trying to demand certain changes uh, to, you know, effectuate your desires on the body. And again, most of them are structural changes, not necessarily ideological ones per se. Mm-hmm. We want to have a voice. Um, but if uh, and I'll use Don Bacon because he's public. But if, if, if some on the kind of other side of the spectrum within the Republican Party have concerns, look, I just don't accept for a minute that. That Don Bacon and my friend, Brian Fitzpatrick, any of those guys, I don't think any of them are going to say, oh, yeah, you know what I want? I want Hakeem Jeffries to be the speaker. <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think anybody wants to allow that to occur. And and, and God you know, forbid, if we actually think that, we, that they would do that, then they're going to be killing us on policy stuff anyway. So I, we're trying to force this into a debate right now. And this is really important. We cannot have unity in January. We can't. If we don't figure out how to have it now, people that are flipping out about Chip, why are you guys forcing questions now? Do you want me to force questions in February when we're taking down a rule on some crap bill that's been brought to the floor? Remember what happened in 2017 and 2018. You know, I know, most of your viewers are smart enough to know, I think. 2017, we dropped the ball in health care. Mm-hmm. With all due respect to Paul Ryan and the boys, they didn't get it done. Mm-hmm. We dropped the ball in 2018 while on good lat one and good lat two and fighting over border security, the lack thereof, really. And, you know, and we dropped the ball. And guess what? We got a pissed off electorate. We got our butts kicked in the fall of 2018. I barely survived. We got through that election. And Senator Cruz barely survived against Beto in that election. Americans were mad. We dropped the ball. Guess what happened next year? Impeachment. And we had a whole thing. And then guess what happened, right? Then 2020 was. So 
There are dominoes and consequences to the lack of leadership in this town, and I'm trying to work with some friends and colleagues today, including some on the other side of the ideological spectrum, to fix it in the family today. I'm not the one saying that we should take it to January 3rd and fight it out. Mm-hmm. Why don't we have another Republican conference meeting next week and say, let's figure out how to get this to 218. Like there are ways to adopt. We got 30 something days. Right. And I will also bring up where was the leadership in December of 2020 when we were barreling towards chaos and we all knew it. And some of us were saying it out loud. Where was the leadership to hold 10 conference Republican meetings to get everybody's heads together to figure out how to avoid the chaos of the first two weeks of January of 21? Mm-hmm. I'm just saying you need leadership in this town, and I ain't seen it. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to force it. You know, one of the things that is always kind of a, a point of question internally, certainly it's one that I've heard about from a number of staffers over the years, is whether it's better if you are a Chip Roy-style conservative who wants to see dramatic change uh, if you know, at the leadership level and within Washington, whether it's actually better to have a conservative, a more conservative voice from leadership or not. Because one of the things that happens, and you know this, is that when you have that kind of investment from people, as I think that Paul Ryan did when he took over the speakership, that actually creates different incentives. And it doesn't necessarily result in the kind of situation uh, where you can get as much potentially out of people who maybe don't have as much conservatism to them, but have an approach that is designed for a coalition government. This is something I've heard from a lot of people who frankly have said to me, we got, you know, uh, you know, as much as we dislike John Boehner, we actually got more out of him than you might've expected because he was put in a bind in a number of scenarios. I'm just, I'm curious as to your reaction to that, both, you know, from your staffer experience and your experience as a member. Well, it's interesting you talk about coalition. Like, I mean, in a, in a 222 to 213 House, actually 212 right now, uh, with the passing of Representative McKeachin, again, you know, um, God rest his soul, mm-hmm. um, you know, it is a coalition-type government, right? I mean, you, you got to figure out how to patch all that together. No one that I'm talking to, and certainly not myself, uh, believes that um, we're going to get Speaker you know, Chip Roy or, or frankly, Speaker Andy Biggs, with all due respect to my friend Andy, whom I nominated in the conference meeting, is essentially a a proxy opposition. Right. Um, and I mean, I respectfully because I love Andy and, and I support him. But we get the joke right in terms of how the votes play out. You got to get a consensus candidate. You've got to be liked among 218 and be able to sort of work across the ideological spectrum to get things done. I, I shun, by the way, the, the fact that people say, well, you can't do that. It's like, well, I worked with the Democrats to pass the PPB Flexibility Act. I worked with Abigail Spanberger on uh, bills to try to limit stock trading. Uh, I'm working right now with the entire Texas delegation on a Texas border plan that we hope to put out next week across a you know wide view of, of, of uh, views across the Republican um, 25 of us. So there, there are a lot of ways you can get things done, um, even though you go take a hard position. Part of it's just work. Um, I just think you say, well, I want rapid change. I don't know. I mean, I'm for incremental change, too. Like I would take a deal on the NDAA that didn't give me every single change I wanted. If I can get the end of vaccine mandates, I might accept that we're not going to go change the woke garbage at D- DOD tomorrow. But I, I'm not saying how I'll vote, but I'm just saying there are things I might accept in all of that. But but my job in my current role, which could change, is to pull. 
right? Mm-hmm. I've got to go plant a flag and say, guys, reminder, here's the actual righteous position, right? When, when people were pushing back on me and saying, when I, oh, Chip, you're bringing an amendment in the rules to say that we want to offer, uh, if 10% of us, it ended up being 20% accepted through agreement, sign something saying we want to bring an amendment forward to the rules committee that we would have right to do so. And they were like, oh man, that could be crazy. Like, look, the House was founded under the idea that I can just go amend it on the floor just because I have an election certificate. Mm-hmm. Like, let's remember where we start, and then let's try to figure out how to get things that we want to get accomplished. And let me say one last thing on the last question. People need to understand there's a lot of chatter going on that you're, you guys are going to give the speakership to the Democrats. People have no idea how the vote actually works on January 3rd. They mm-hmm. need to get educated on it. It is a majority of those present offering a surname as a vote. That matters. You can do the math and figure out the denominator and who's there and who's not there. But mm-hmm. the short answer is if every Republican who has an election certificate shows up that day and votes for a Republican of any name, doesn't matter what it is, so long as it's Republican, there's no chance a Democrat can become speaker. So if there's three or four or five or 10 Republicans who would like to have Hakeem Jeffries as the speaker, I'd like them to go on TV and say so. But I'm just saying people need to, there's a a misunderstanding that somehow someone can win it with a plurality. They can't under the current rules unless we change the rules. Uh, Just uh, some quick questions. Uh, uh, Proxy voting. How can we make sure that we never go backwards when it comes to the policy involved in terms of allowing people to basically work from home as members of Congress? Yeah, I mean, we, we need to stop it. I mean, I, I was a part of and initiated the lawsuit on that. And credit to Kevin McCarthy and, and his staff, his lawyer, Michaela Carr, and some outside lawyers. We worked on it hard. Uh, and unfortunately, the, the Supreme Court didn't really take up the issue. They let it die. So we didn't actually lose. We just They just would refuse to take it up. They said, oh, you let you house guys figure it out. I think that was a mistake. I think it's fundamental yeah. to our operation. And I think it's black letter in the Constitution. you got a quorum. we got to be there. We're supposed to physically be present. Um, credit to Kevin. He says he would abolish the proxy rule. I don't think there's any speaker that we would uh, choose, whether it's Kevin or somebody else that would mm-hmm. reinstitute the proxy rule. Um, I don't think you need to amend the constitution to demand it. I already think it's unconstitutional, but like I said, the court didn't take it up. I just hope we'll embrace rules. I mean, it's a majoritarian body. So all you can do is force us to do our job and be physically present and the voters demand we do it. Um, I think Kevin did great on the lawsuit side. I wish he would have exercised more authority on Republicans and said, no, none of you guys are going to vote proxy or you're going to yeah. lose your freaking committee ships. Yeah. Don't do it. And, and, and I know that's heavy handed, but look, that's what leadership is. You got to no, don't I, do I, this guy. I completely agree with you. I think it's black letter law. I don't think that you can get yeah. around it. And it, it's, it's very, uh, frustrating that the court didn't take it up. Um, you mentioned the vaccine mandates in the NDAA. Yeah. Where do we stand on that? Yeah, well, I don't want to get too far afield because there's ongoing negotiations going on. But what I'll tell you is I think progress is being made. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty hopeful that Draft Our Daughters has exited out of the deal. And I'm, I'm, I'm confident that there's good conversations going on, uh, on with respect to the vaccine mandates. There's some sticking points, right, about, um, you know, getting uh, allowing members to to, uh, to, you know, to be, um, uh, you know, brought back into the service uh, and or, you know, how their records are cleared off, all the things that we want, reinstatement. I, I introduce legislation to do that. So we're trying to work through all of that. Obviously, the first, you know, triage to stop the bleeding is to end the mandates and then try to fix the mess. So we're working through that, and I hope we will, uh, but we're still working on it. How do we avoid having a Republican Party that takes a lesson away from this midterm uh, that essentially 
uh, a return to the old days of of tax policy and kind of chamber of commerce uh, policy uh, is the way to go, just given the way that some of these elections played out. And I and I don't think that that's the reason that some of these uh, more populist candidates lost. But I do think that's going to be the spin that Washington tries to make about what Republicans need to do next. Yeah, look, I couldn't agree with you more. You and I are 100% on the same page about that. Um, and I'd say you look no further than Florida. And and I know a lot of people, that's an easy answer uh, for some. But but I take a lot of stock in that. Um, you know, I've got a lot of respect for, for Governor DeSantis. Um, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful he'll be, you know, entering the fray. But but uh, but looking at Florida and the, and the accomplishment there with a guy who was willing to just look at Disney and stare him down. And to take a stand on COVID. And a lot of people say, oh, no, well, he was he was for the lockdowns before he's against them. Oh, look, he was managing what he was managing in the spring of 2020 with a mm-hmm. lot of chaos and noise coming from Washington. And then he looked at all the facts. And he said, we need to open our state up. And then he fought for it. And then he fought all the COVID tyranny. Uh, and so, look, at the end of the day, we need to look at that kind of a model, a willingness to take on and lead like the hung, the nation is hungry for leadership. Like they just want you to be a reasonable, common sense human being, get in your lane, govern, do the right things, you know, get into your, 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 your limited role. Don't get up here and start trying to micromanage people's lives. And we got to fundamentally agree to disagree. Dang. I mean, federalism is a beautiful thing if we'll embrace it. And if California wants to do whack job, crazy things and let Texas be Texas, great. But we got to agree to disagree or we're going to tear the nation apart. The model is DeSantis leadership. It's not going back to the Chamber of Commerce. We're going to talk about, oh, we're going to talk about crime and inflation, and we're going to talk about, oh, taxes. No. I mean, you know, those things are important. I'm obviously for fighting, you know, crime and and, and restoring that stuff. But you got to get to the heart of what's tearing the country apart. And it's a whole bunch of tyranny coming from bureaucrats in Washington. And frankly, just even the rhetorical tyranny of telling everybody how to live their lives. And we're dealing with big tech and all the issues. And we got to deal with that head on. Governor DeSantis did that, took on big tech, took on Disney, took on COVID tyranny, while he also did a good job with the budget and did a good job with roads. How how fast do they build bridges after hurricanes, right? I mean, so just be competent, dang it, you know? So last question for you. Um, You know, one of the things that obviously was an issue that uh, the left played up, the media played up uh, significantly headed into this election was the aftermath of the Dobbs decision. You had ridiculous yeah. headlines in places like Politico saying that Republicans were suffering from Dobbs regret, uh, you know, uh, quoting a bunch of, of uh, consultants who I'm sure, you know, uh, do not have conservative opinions on the abortion issue. You took on someone who basically made her name on the abortion issue uh, in Texas in Wendy Davis. Uh, and you had to navigate that as a, a man arguing for the pro-life position against someone who had the backing of the media, every national uh, you know, pro-abortion group, et cetera. And you won. I'm curious about the lessons that you take away from that, that you hope that other politicians across the country who favor life would also take away in terms of how you lean into that issue, how you talk about it and how you navigate something that is, you know, frankly, something that a lot of politicians just run away from. Well, it's a great question. And and I would note that, uh, you know, back to DeSantis, Abbott and others in September, uh, they saved the Republican Party from the stupidity of Washington Republicans who are going down the 15 week 
road mm-hmm. of trying to federalize all this nonsense uh, and and change the conversation back to border security and immigration. And I think they saved us from an absolute train wreck and got us into the place where we could at least do okay compared to the train wreck I think we were going to get to if we were going down the road of talking about Mar-a-Lago and, and responding to Dobbs because mm-hmm. we were responding to it the wrong way. Instead of embracing life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At the core, it is who we are as Americans. And you asked a question about Wendy. I run unapologetically and happily as a conservative who believes in limited government and believes in life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You are never on the wrong side when you're on the side of freedom. You are never on the wrong side when you're on the side of life. And that's an easy place for me to land. I have no interest in telling people how to live their lives. I have no interest in trying to intrude on tough decisions that all families have to kind of deal with and talking to doctors and so forth. But I do have an interest in trying to stand up for an innocent life that has to have a voice, has to have people defending their right, their right to life. That's a very different thing. You can have that conversation. You can say we're going to let the states figure this out. But it will not surprise you that I'm okay pushing back with some of my very pro-life people, people I respect, people like Robbie George, people like people at the Heritage Foundation that have written a lot of papers about we need to move quickly and federalize and get involved with this. Hold on. Let's let's remember that what we're talking about here is something that has been at the state purview. It was federalized in court wrongly, and now the court has rightly fixed that. Now let's take a breath and let's figure out what we can do to make sure we protect more babies and more moms and stand up for more families. That's how you talk about these things. You don't shame anybody. You don't talk about why this is such a horrible. You talk about life and babies and families and community and what we can do as leaders to advance those things. Chip Roy, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Thanks, Ben. God bless. More of the Ben Dominish podcast right after this. I wanted to weigh in for just a moment on this news that uh, the head of the RNC, RNC chairwoman, uh, uh, Rana Romney McDaniel, is uh, planning to conduct an autopsy on the 2022 midterms that features the input from a number of different sources. From my perspective, this is totally fine. You obviously can go down this road, but you're also someone who's engaging in the same kind of uh, autopsy effort that happened after 2012 uh, with Romney being the active uh, name involved in it. Look, when you look back at the 2012 uh, autopsy, there were so many bad conclusions that were drawn from it, uh, namely the conclusion regarding the need to uh, endorse comprehensive immigration reform as being essential to reach out to Hispanic constituents. This is something that obviously has been proven wrong in election after election since then. But it also bothers me that Ronald Romney McDaniel is engaged in this uh, and including some people who I just don't think have a lot to offer in terms of their perspective. On the one hand, among uh, winners, you have Katie Britt from the state of Alabama. Uh, She's obviously someone who won a Senate seat there. Her Democratic opponent got less than 31% of the vote. I just don't know how much input uh, you should really accept from someone who is basically in an automatic Republican seat. On the flip side, you have input uh, expected from Blake Masters, the failed uh, Arizona Senate candidate. Look, 
I understand that Blake Masters is a very smart guy. He co-wrote a book with uh, Peter Thiel called Zero to One. He's uh, someone who clearly has interesting beliefs. But one of the things that I think we've known about him is that his con- campaign was fairly unconventional. He ran it with a campaign manager who had never been a campaign manager before at any level. Uh, and someone who really did not have the kind of background typical to that experience. He says that we need to reassess everything from the perspective of uh, eliminating the consultant-based one-size-fits-all strategies. That's fine, but there's also that perspective that says one of the reasons that there are one-size-fits-all strategies in politics is that it turns out that they work. What does that mean? It means fundraising. It means direct mail. It means an approach to advertising. It means basic things that we all know are just the humdrum things that work about American politics and that have been proven to work time and again. Sometimes you should apply the principle of G.K. Chesterton when it comes to fences. that You should not knock one down until you know why it was stood up in the first place when it comes to political analysis. I'm Ben Dominich. You've been listening to another edition of the Ben Dominich Podcast. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. We'll be back soon with more to dive back into the fray. Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com.